The growing problem of antibiotic resistance has aroused fears of what the World Health Organization calls a post-antibiotic era in which common infections and minor injuries can kill. What can we do to ensure that such an era doesn't arrive? I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Otto Kars, Professor in the Department of Medical Sciences at Uppsala University in Sweden. Dr. Kars has co-authored a perspective article on the prospects for combating antibiotic resistance. Dr. Kars, in your article, you name a number of bacterial species that have developed resistance to most antibiotics. Overall, what's the scope of the problem and how quickly is it growing? I've been working with this issue since 10 or 20 years back, and I'm really scared myself about the pace that bacterial species are not picking up resistance and multi-resistance. In some of these bacteria, you can even find resistance to 30 or even more resistance to different antibiotics organized in genetic elements in the bacteria that can spread between bacteria. So it has increased in pace, and it is really a very dangerous situation, I would say, to health systems in all the world, primarily in the developing countries. In your article, you nonetheless offer some cause for optimism. You point out that some progress has been made. What do you see as the most promising development on that front over the past couple of years? Well, first of all, it has taken a very long time. I mean, the world has really been complacent. So has the World Health Organization, which has not previously shown signs of leadership for this tremendously dangerous crisis we are facing. But the promising science is that many governments, including now also the United States, has identified this as a priority, are taking actions towards the national action plans, trying to contain the problem by very well-known means like hygiene, infection control, stewardship, and so on, to minimize the irrational use of antibiotics, which is driving resistance. But Another positive sign is that drug companies and small and big companies, academia, policymakers, politicians, has realized that we cannot rely on big pharma giving us as new antibiotics in the future. We need to find a new collaborative model where researchers from all these areas, public and private, share knowledge and identify the challenges and solve the scientific challenges because they are numerous and huge to really get the new antibiotic. And... That is one important part of a new way of dealing with the supply, new urgent antibacterials. And also another good sign is that in this debate, people are realizing that we need to change the business model significantly. We cannot accept a model that is based, where return of investment is based on volume sales, because volume sales drives resistance in an irrational use. So we need to find new incentive structures. So those are good signs. And also, thirdly, WHO is now taking up this, and there will be a global action plan probably adopted by the WHO member states in May. But as I said before, we are very, very late. Going back for a moment to the issue with pharmaceutical companies, what sorts of new incentives can be offered to them to speed the development of new antibiotics? Well, I think it's not only really the major companies, because I think the innovative capacity no longer lies with the major pharmaceutical industry. Many of these companies have left over the last 10 years this area because of the scientific challenges, because also that the financial return from other areas is more predictable, like chronic diseases. So I think first is collaborative models which are open, where you share knowledge and successes and failures to really overcome the scientific challenges. And these need push funding from the public sector. 
And then you need to incentivize earlier on in the drug development chain by maybe milestone payments so that the public sector and the private sector shares the risks of drug development because we have to take risks. If we don't take risks, we won't get any. And then on the other side, to avoid the big sales, that is really something that we need to avoid in the future because you need to, to simply minimize the use and restrict the use to those patients and animals that really need it. To avoid the misuse and overuse to happen, we need to have other what we call pull mechanisms, which could be advanced market commitments and other mechanisms that secures return of investment, but without major sales. This is not easy, but it's ongoing in the debate, and I think we will find a way forward in this area. On that conservation front, the overuse of antibiotics for growth promotion in food animals and plants, the European Union has now restricted that practice. So what exactly are the EU rules, and what's being done to expand that beyond Europe? Well, I think the EU has taken strong leadership in this area, and Sweden, which is my country, in fact, banned antibiotics in feeds for growth promotion already in 1986, and then the EU followed, and as you said, in 2060, there is a ban to use it. I mean, healthy animals really don't need antibiotics. There are significant gains from antibiotic load, subtherapeutic doses as we know it, and I think we can call it a compensatory mechanism for uh, partly unsanitary conditions. So what happened in the EU is that was banned, and it has really not been showing any detrimental effects on the business. So I think that there is an over-reliance on this as a mechanism, and I think we all know that it drives resistance, and resistance spreads between animals and man. So I think the EU example should be followed, and there should be a ban for antibiotics as a massive growth promotion and also for other non-sort of disease-treating purposes. Another common problem, particularly in the United States, is the prescribing of antibiotics for what turn out to be viral infections. And in part, that seems to be because patients demand it. So has progress been made in educating both clinicians and patients about the danger of that practice? Well, I think this is a very important point to bring up, because I think if we look upon this globally, which we need to do, because this is really a global problem, antibiotics is totally uncontrolled, both in the human sector and in the animal sector in many parts of the world. And what we can do to start with is, without having any more knowledge really, is to educate both these stakeholder groups. It's a clear responsibility for prescribers to be rational in the prescribing and avoid the demand from the patients. That is easy to say because patients are demanding. We know that is taking place all over the world. And there are good examples from educational activities to patients. There is a huge knowledge gap. Patients normally don't, you know, many patients don't know the difference between a viral disease and a bacterial disease. And furthermore, not even all bacterial diseases need to be treated if they're simple. So that educational effort should be, I think, scaled up on a global scale, of course, contextualized nationally. But I think we can do a lot of good things if there is less demand that it will be much easier for the prescriber to avoid a prescription of an antibiotic. And this is what we have found here in Sweden is helpful. There is a campaign, a smart antibiotic use campaign in Thailand showing the same things. Patients are knowing what is at stake. If they know that to take an antibiotic is not really safe for them, it affects their normal bacterial flora, which could drive resistance within the commensal flora, which in turn could give a difficult-to-treat infection later in life. All these arguments on the individual level level could help 
to reduce demand. So I think those areas are really important. Another problem you mentioned, and this one in poorer countries, is the inappropriate use of antibiotics that's fostered by financial incentives to providers. What kind of incentives are there? Well, I think we can speak of misaligned financial incentives from the top to the bottom, really, from the pharmaceutical industry to the drug seller to the pharmacist to the doctor. There are many examples of direct financial incentives to prescribers in many of the developing countries. This is something that is really difficult to target, but still is a major roadblock for improvement of practices. So I think here we need to have global agreements between countries and members of the WHO and the world to regulate this and not accept over-the-counter sales where you can take it away without minimizing access to essential medicines and to avoid commercial marketing to prescribers and drug dispensers and also direct-to-consumer advertisement to patients. But that is really on the national regulatory system level. Finally, you write that in wealthier countries, all healthcare facilities should institute antibiotic stewardship programs. So what does an antibiotic stewardship program look like? Of course, it contextualized depending on the structure and the level of healthcare. But basically what you need to know is how much antibiotics is used and for what purposes. You need to have numbers and figures on the magnitudes of use. You need to have a system in place where you can really measure and compare prescribing practices over clinics, departments, and also in the outpatient setting. But the long-term perspective is really to maybe even have a compulsory module for reporting antibiotic use on the individual prescriber level. Having said that, how can we define rational antibiotic use? I think the best way to define it is the number of prescriptions that are according to guidelines and where antibiotics are prescribed for the diagnosis that we should use these precious drugs. So if we can find ways of comparing this and move towards a stronger responsibility on the individual prescribers, I think that is something that we need to move to. Thank you, Dr. Kars.